the expression psyops, not a reference to somebody from Duck Dynasty, but stands for psychological operations. It's a form of warfare as old as the art of war itself. An early example of this can be found in the records concerning Alexander the Great, his battle strategies. He gave orders one time when he was in full retreat from a larger superior military force. He ordered his soldiers to construct breastplates and helmets, armor, that would fit a man that was seven to eight feet tall. And and then leave them behind as they escape from the superior military force. Of course, those other soldiers, the opponents, would come and find these huge breastplates and these huge pieces of armor and would be psyched out and would quit and would stop chasing Alexander the Great. Well, recently, archaeologists found an artifact from that retreat to indicate to you how large their soldiers were. And it was a toothbrush. (laughs) And of course, the whole purpose was to cause you to believe something that simply wasn't true, that there would be somebody that would use a toothbrush of this size. I hope that's okay right there. And we've been studying in Colossians chapter 2 about toxic Christians and toxic Christianity. In the first two chapters of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is laying down a foundation above the things that God has done for us and that only God has done for us that we can never do for ourselves. And in the process of it, in chapter 2, he's tried to warn and caution these young Christians in Colossae against toxic forms of Christianity that would creep in over time. Starting next Sunday, we're going to begin chapter 3, and we're going to turn a corner in our study of Colossians, looking not at who we are in Christ, but because of who we are, how should we live? How can we live? What is the Christian life really like? How do you become real? And so, in our study today, however, our title is How to Protect Yourself from Toxic Christianity. Just like Alexander the Great trying to deceive those who chased him, toxic Christianity will lead you to believe something that isn't true. And this morning we're going to look at the three final but the most toxic forms of Christianity. These are the things that can creep into your heart and your mind right where you're sitting. You don't have to go to another church. We've looked at the marks of a poisonous church. You don't have to go to one of those. It can happen to you right where you're sitting. How can you protect yourself from toxic Christianity? Well, the greatest protection you have lies in rejection. Being able to identify those toxic forms and reject them. And so what are they? Well, first of all, you and I need to reject rule-keeping as a measure of your relationship to God. We need to reject rule-keeping as a measure of our relationship to God. Look at how he begins in chapter 2, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or 
regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, we understand grace in a true, healthy church founded in the gospel. We talk a lot about grace. Grace means unmerited favor, describing something God gives or does without regard to who you and I are or what we have done, something we don't deserve. And did you know that wherever grace is preached, it is offensive to some? Because grace says to me that I contributed nothing to my salvation, that nothing in me could have accomplished my salvation. That's offensive. It also says about God that He did it all, that He accomplished everything that was necessary to secure my salvation. And so all praise, all honor, all glory can only go to God, can never come to me. And there's something in us that hates that. Legalism or rule-keeping is a protest against grace. It argues that you and I must observe a set of rules in order to be saved or in order to grow as a Christian. And so the question is, have you been damaged by legalism? Has it affected you? Well, let me give you two diagnostic questions this morning that you can ask yourself. We could spend a lot of time on this subject. But here's the first question you can ask yourself. Do you understand the purpose of God's law? If you misunderstand it, you can fall quickly into rule-keeping as a way of life. Do you understand the purpose of God's law? Look at verse 17. He talks about the things that people were being expected to do, and he says that these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He's probably referring to Jewish ways of applying the Old Testament law. And it was very, very hard for the new Christian movement, new Christians coming out of Judaism, to understand their relationship to the Old Testament law and the dietary restrictions that were embedded in it and the observation of certain holidays and feasts and festivals. But let me say several things about God's law that will lead us to understanding its purpose. First, the law of God reflects the character of God. When you look into the law of God in the Old Testament, it tells you something about who God is, and because of that, the law is good. It is always good because it reflects who God is. And just as it reflects who God is, the law also reveals His standard for my life. The law reveals what I am to be, how I am to live, and it is a reflection of the glory and the character of God himself. It is the righteousness that I am to attain, is the righteousness that I am to represent, and the law shows me that. But as you might expect, because of that, the law of God also exposes my sinfulness, because I can't keep that standard. I can't keep it perfectly. I am a sinner, and so are you. But it's like a light in a dark place. When I begin to read the law, 
It's like the light coming up in a dark room, and I begin to see myself as I really am. And so I can say this about the law. Even though it's good, even though it reflects God's character, ultimately the law of God condemns me. It condemns me, and it cannot change me. That is why in Galatians 3.24, Paul states specifically the purpose of the law. And this is what he says. It's not on the screen. Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our teacher to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, if you don't understand that the purpose of the law was to bring you to Christ, that the purpose of the law was to show your poverty, was to show your inadequacy, and to show the fulfillment of everything you need in Jesus Christ. If you don't understand the purpose of the law, you may spend the rest of your life trying to be acceptable to God when you're already accepted in Christ. Do you understand the purpose of the law? A second question to ask yourself to see if you've fallen into this trap of rule-keeping is this. This is subtle. Do you grade obedience in yourself and others? Like give it an A or a B or a C minus. Do you grade obedience in yourself and in others? When you and I focus on rule keeping, our life can very easily become about performance. I did well, I didn't do well. And when you and I focus on performance, we can look at certain acts of obedience as somehow superior to other acts of obedience. Some things are A behavior, some things are B, some things are C, some are single, some are doubles, some are triples. And we can look at our behavior and our obedience in that same way. It shows up sometimes in the narrow definitions of what a real, strong, and devoted Christian looks like, what you should be doing with your life. And I'm going to point out some topics, but the tendency is to identify certain issues and certain activities, and we applaud them, and we celebrate them. It's not that they're bad, it's that we're grading obedience. And it might be a topic like adoption. Right now, currently, adoption is held up as a significant level of obedience, superior sometimes to other forms of obedience. It's not that there's anything wrong with adoption. It's not that there's a strong scriptural foundation for adoption. It's that we are grading obedience. Overseas mission trips, whether you've been or not been, establishes a certain level of obedience. Human trafficking, involvement in social justice issues, being pro-life, whatever your issue, whatever your level of obedience, whatever your activity, We sometimes commit ourselves to that particular activity and we believe that we are attaining a higher level or a superior form of obedience from others. At that point, certain life choices and paths become extraordinary or radical when they should just be known as obedience. Radical obedience is a myth. There's only obedience and disobedience. When Gail and I left California some 25 years ago and we moved from Los Angeles County with 15 million people, we moved to northeast Mississippi. The whole state of Mississippi at that time only had about two and a half million people. There were more people in our little corner of Los Angeles than there were in the whole state of Mississippi. 
And we left inner city Los Angeles, and we landed in a small community of about 800 people. You say, how did that happen? I wondered that myself. After about two weeks, after I got there, I thought, dear Lord, what have I done? I'm not like these people. I've never grew up in a, in a country setting or rural setting. I didn't fish or hunt or grow with girls who do. <laughs> Everything in Los Angeles is rush, 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 hurry, hurry, hurry. And I remember after a couple of days, I went down to the country store. I could walk to it from the church. And I walked down to the country store where there were a group of older men sitting on a bench in the sunshine. They said they were farmers, but I never saw any evidence of that. And I sat there with those men for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I sat with them for a whole 30 minutes. That was a huge commitment of time in my mind. I got up to leave, and they said, Preacher, what's your hurry? <laughs> in Los Angeles, it's perpetual light and noise. Always traffic noise, always light. When I went to bed at night in Dumas, Mississippi, we had to turn on the fan so we'd have a sufficient level of noise so I could sleep. In Los Angeles, they had some things, though, that were similar to northeast Mississippi. They had drive-by shootings. In Mississippi at that time, they had roadside hunting. And if I was driving between two vehicles on a lonely country road, it felt like South Central Los Angeles. And I wrestled with being there. I wrestled with it. I was 27 years old. I felt that I had my whole life in front of me. I wanted to be on a foreign mission field. I didn't want to be in Northeast Mississippi. I was sitting there in this small church, in this small community, with people that didn't understand me, and I didn't understand them at the time. And I thought, I don't want to be here. I want to be doing something that's big for God. I want to do something that's extraordinary for God. I want to be anywhere but here. And then God convicted me and said that when you are obedient... That is the most extraordinary thing you can do. And I had to get down more than once on my knees and pray, God, if all you ever call me to do is be a faithful pastor to these people in the middle of nowhere, my answer is yes. Paul says, in the face of those who would establish extraordinary levels of obedience, let no one judge you. Let no one judge you. There is no ordinary obedience or extraordinary obedience. There is just obedience. But not only should you protect yourself by rejecting rule-keeping as a measure of your relationship to God. But there's a certain form of toxic Christianity that you and I need to pay attention to, and that's number two. Reject experience as a measure of your relationship to God. Reject experience as a measure of your relationship to God. Look at verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, 
intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Paul's describing here a kind of mystical experience. It included supernatural visions of a heavenly realm. The person who was caught up in this form of Christianity would have these exalted experiences, and then that worshiper would then return with all kinds of stories of what he or she saw in their vision. And their point was that deep spirituality requires a mystical experience. Paul says that this kind of spiritual quest is dangerous. Let no one cheat you of your reward. That word cheat is used in athletics even in ancient times to describe what happens when an umpire or a referee makes an unfair call and takes away victory that is rightfully yours. You and I seeing that call on television or during a ball game, we say, we got robbed, don't we? And he says, don't let anybody cheat you of your reward. What are you being cheated of? What's the reward you're being cheated of? Well, he describes it. Here's the statement I want you to hear. You possess a direct and intimate connection to Jesus. You have that. In verse 19, again, he says, And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Right now, Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He is not like a head. This is not an analogy. The Bible says Jesus is the head. He's the head of the church. He's the head of this church. And you, as a believer, are part of the body of Christ in such a way that you have a direct and intimate connection with the head who is Jesus Christ right now. And in that, you share that connection with every other Christian in the body of Christ. That's why I have absolute confidence in the capacity of Jesus Christ to lead and guide and fill leadership roles in our church because he is the head. And he places people in the body exactly where he wants them to be. And so our task as pastors of Wind Baptist Church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word equip in Ephesians 4 describes a bone that's out of joint or something that's dislocated. And when you equip it, you put it back in proper alignment. So what are you doing when you equip the saints? You're helping the saint come to a place where they are properly related to the head. Where you can hear Christ for yourself and follow him and hear his direction and hear his guidance. Jesus Christ wants to direct you directly, not through a mediator. And you share that connection with every other Christian. He says that from this head, the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Can I just tell you something today? As a believer, connected to the head who is Jesus Christ, that he wants to grow you into the likeness of Jesus, and that he does not do that in your life apart from the church. 
Sometimes we have made our walk with God so highly individualistic that we have forgotten passages like this where he says that he gives growth to the body collectively. And so it's absolutely vital that you are plugged into the church in a significant way. That you are in a Bible study group where you are rubbing shoulders and lives with other men and women who love Jesus. It's in the context of those relationships that you will grow more, understand more, and become more Christ-like than any other approach to Christian faith. You cannot pursue what you already possess. The highest mystical experience that I can describe for you is the one that's in your heart right now, child of God. That you are organically linked to Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit and that you are organically linked to every other member of the body of Christ through that same spirit. So the legalist will press you to conform to his rules. The mystic will cheat or distract you from the connection that you already have with Jesus Christ. But to protect yourself, you must also, thirdly, Reject self-sacrifice as a measure of your relationship to God. This is the third toxic form of Christianity, an emphasis on self-sacrifice. Look at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is a classic description of asceticism, which elevates self-denial so that it becomes the highest form of spiritual activity. The idea is that if you say no to yourself enough, you will draw closer to Jesus. The roots of asceticism go all the way back to the New Testament, where Jesus talked about self-denial, and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But you know the early church was persecuted. If you were a Christian in the first two, three centuries of Christianity, it was a life and death issue. You could lose everything you had. You could lose your family. You could lose your property. You could lose your life. And that went on. And as the church not only survived but thrived in that environment, the faith of believers was white hot and strong and intense. And then there was the, the persecution of Diocletian. He was the last emperor before Constantine. If you know your history, you know Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Christianity had grown to such an extent that it was finally accepted. And some men and women noticed that Christians became lax. Being Christian wasn't dangerous anymore. And in that atmosphere of freedom, the intensity of devotion to Christ seemed to lessen. And so there were groups of men and women who went out into the isolated deserts of the Middle East, and they lived in community away from the rest of the world to devote themselves to Christ. The desert fathers and the desert mothers were withdrawing from the world. They also went to extreme forms of asceticism, punishing their bodies, 
denying themselves, standing for days at a time, doing all kinds of stuff to, to practice a form of self-sacrifice that they believe would draw them closer to God. About 75 years after Christianity was legal, there was a man named Simeon Stylites who went out in the desert to be alone, to get away from people, lived in a little cave by himself. People heard he was there. They went out there and asked him to pray for him. And he couldn't even concentrate on his own prayer life. There were so many people coming to see him. So he put up a platform that was nine feet tall out in the desert, and he lived on top of the platform. And that wasn't tall enough. People kept coming. So he built it 20 feet tall until it was 50 feet tall. 50 feet tall to get away from everybody, living on top of a platform. He lived there for 36 years. Paul would have said to Simeon, why? Why? Why do you subject yourself to that kind of self-sacrificial behavior? Let me tell you the truth about self-denial. First, self-denial does not stop or change sinful desires. Self-denial does not stop or change sinful desires. Did you hear it in verse 23? He said, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You can run, but you can't hide. You can go into a deep hole and pull a rock over the top of you. You can go behind a thick wall and wall yourself off from people. You can go as far as you can to get away from everybody, but sin dwells in the human heart. And someone may look holier than you, but in their heart they are the same as you. They feel the pull. They feel the struggle. Self-denial does not stop or change sinful desires. Secondly, not all desire is sinful. Just because you desire something doesn't make it wrong. Some of you assume that every desire you have is selfish or sinful. But did you know that some desires are God-given? Some desires are shaped and molded by God. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He gives you the ability to do it, but he also puts in you the will or the desire to do it. And that word in Philippians 2.13 for will is the same word translated elsewhere as lust. He works in you both to will or desire and to do. Now why is that significant? Because when you are seeking him, when you're wanting to know him, when you're wanting to obey him, and you are not obstinate of heart, you can expect that Almighty God is going to shape the desires of your heart. Now, you may need to be discerning. You may need to look at Scripture. You may need to talk to godly counselors. But the bottom line is, not all of your desires are evil and sinful. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When you're seeking Him, He will shape those desires. Not all desires are sinful. And then thirdly, Jesus calls you to follow Him. Rejecting self-rule and embracing his rule in your life. There is a biblical form of self-denial. It is not about conquering sin. It is about dethroning self. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
it would be a lot easier to hide out in a monastery than to deal with your kids at home. Now, I almost heard an amen, but you were sitting by your kids. When Jesus lived on this earth, he didn't live 36 years and withdraw from people. He didn't live 36 years on top of a stick. Jesus Christ, everywhere he went, he encountered people. Everywhere he went, he encountered hurting people who needed relief from God. He encountered seeking people. He needed directions to God. Everywhere he went. And so when he says to you and me to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, what is he saying? He's saying, put me in charge. It's not your will that needs to be on the throne. It's my will that needs to be on the throne. And so self-denial, as the Scripture teaches it, as Jesus taught it, was not about a methodology for overcoming sin by, by cutting out everything pleasurable in your life, all joy, all good things that God makes and, and that we're to receive. He, it's not about that. That doesn't overcome anything in your heart that's sinful. But self-denial is about coming to Jesus Christ and saying, you are Lord. The legalists will judge you. Mysticism will cheat you. Asceticism will enslave you. But thank God for the truth that I can know him not through rule keeping or experiences or self-sacrifice, but through the gospel which says that God will save me by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, plus nothing. Plus nothing. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. If you're a Christian today, the righteous life of Jesus Christ has been given to you as a gift. The cross of Jesus represents forgiveness for you. And the loving rule of King Jesus is your greatest pathway to freedom and liberty, to let him have control, full control of your life. And so, brother or sister, are you rejecting the toxic forms of Christianity? As we begin to study what real Christianity is next week, I can't imagine a better place for you and me to go than to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to lay down all of my misconceptions about you. And I acknowledge this morning that it's all about you. It's not about me. And I thank you for all that you've done for me. And right now, I lay my life before you. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to come in to my life and sit on the throne and I am getting off of it and I'm letting you be in charge. And brother, sister, you and I have to do that every day. Jesus said we need to deny ourselves and take up of our cross daily, daily, and let him sit on that throne. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in just a moment when we stand and sing, I want to invite you to slip out of the pew, to come and take one of these pastors by the hand. And just tell them, I, I want to be saved. I, I want to know what it is to walk with Christ, to have forgiveness for my sins.
I want to become a Christ follower. Jesus came into this world to rescue you from the enemies of your soul. I don't know what you're struggling with, but Jesus can change you. If you'll come and put your trust in him, that process can begin today. These men will share scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. And they'll pray with you in such a way that you can leave here today with a new life. If you've been visiting, you know this is where God wants you to plant your life. We invite you to come and unite with this church fellowship. And we'll explain to you how we receive members. You may just need to pray. Right where you'll be standing or down front, you can come and kneel at the front. Whatever way God leads you, this is a time of worship.